welcome to BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT's General Mechanisms podcast. Today we're speaking to investigative journalist Jeff White. Well, perhaps I could just ask you, what's the thing you're proudest of so far? You're, a, you're an investigative journalist, you've broken some interesting stuff over the years. What do you look back on with, uh, with the most affection? <laughs> affection, yeah, affection is one word. But I, do you know, actually, <laughs> I, I can categorically answer that. The most satisfying experience I've had in my 10 plus years of doing investigative journalism around tech was when it was after the hacking of Talk Talk back in 2015 and un- connected to but weirdly unrelated to the hacking of Talk Talk there was a bunch of scammers who'd been phoning up customers of Talk Talk mainly old people certainly a lot of the ones we know about older people who mm. fell for these scams claiming to be Talk Talk uh, customer support and then they would they would enact a particular scam on them that separated them from tens of thousands of their pounds of their savings so it's a, it's a bank scam basically right and i just you know it was cybercrime is one thing but this was up close and personal on the phone tricking old people mm. into in some cases their life savings being lost it was nasty um one of them made the mistake of calling one of the victims from his own phone it seems an indian mobile number and back in the day this is before cambridge analytica you could enter a phone number into facebook and even if the Facebook user hadn't made their number public, if they'd used their phone number as part of Facebook's registration, you could search for them via their mobile number. Right. So I took the Indian number, entered it into Facebook, and up popped a profile for a guy called Shaweeb Khan, who, <laughs> it turns <laughs> out, was the guy, at least one of the guys who'd been phoning around these talk talk customers. And there was a whole bunch of other evidence as well that we, we sort of accumulated that connected him to this scam. And honestly, him and his accomplice... Sahail Hussein putting their pictures and their names on screen and outing them as the folks behind this scam was just one of the most satisfying experiences yeah. I've, I've had. It was finally like there is a person behind this and here's what they look like. It was very, very satisfying. Of course, it didn't unfortunately get the money back for the talk talk victims, but it you know, it really it really hit the button that <laughs> it really did. Yeah, that, that, that sounds excellent. And uh, that's the sort of thing you're aiming for, isn't it, in, in, in your role, I guess, as an investigative journalist to actually make personal connections reveal the actual source not just talking general generalities if you can get away uh, yeah yeah with that so uh, now obviously you've got your book coming out shortly Uh, remind me when it's out uh, uh, Jeff it's out 10th of August crime.com is out on the 10th of August so fairly soon okay so I'm sure you do pre-orders I noticed on Twitter the other day that you were were setting some little um, interesting puzzles for folks to be able to get a free copy uh, which yes indeed which, which yes. is interesting um so uh, just talk about some of the content of it obviously you're not going to give it all away we're in talk for half an hour um so uh, I, I, it struck me straight away when i was just reading the, even the introduction um you talk about the um some of the sort of well, some of the roots in sort of hippie culture there's a very utopian streak of thinking in hippie culture from the 60s mm. which has kind of been replicated hasn't it in in, in Silicon Valley. Do you, do you think that sort of strain of thinking has actually caused a lot of the problems that we're now facing uh, with technology in our society? I think inadvertently, yes. Um, I mean, the, the roots, you know, the hippie roots that you talk about, there was, there was obviously a lot of development going on around um, around California with, mm. with early internet and to a certain extent the early web as well. Um, and 
there was this vision that, that some of it came out of the sort of failure of the hippie movement. You know, obviously the, the, the hippie movement died. You had the Altamont riots and so on. Mm. And there was this idea, well, it hasn't worked in the real world, but there's this whole online space, this virtual space opening up. Maybe the, the idea for communal living and the idea for utopian living we had in the real world, we can replicate that online. And a, a key part of that vision was there, there won't be any sort of censorship. There won't be any central authority. There won't be any um, hidden information everything will be out there everything will be communal we will we will build this sort of utopian freedom of information free vision free living society online and of course at that time you know the, none of it was commercial you didn't need to protect credit card numbers or login details because mm. you know the, the whole point of it was everything's online everything's available everything's accessible so what we've experienced as as the web's become commercial what we've experienced is a sort of retrofitting of society's kind of norms of well, we have security and we have privacy and we have authority. All those things have been retrofitted back onto the internet and the World Wide Web that weren't there at the beginning. So I do think, you know, the, the dream of that utopian vision of online living has has saddled us with quite a few problems because we're now having to go, well, hang on, you know, you've got to put your bank cards on the internet. How, how are you going to do that in a safe way? So, yeah, inadvertently, yes, I guess would be the answer to your question. And, and the, 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 that sort of positive utopian thinking tends to come in waves, doesn't it? Because it wasn't so many years ago um, with, with the Arab Spring and things like that where the view was, well, you know, democracy is going to be truly open now. But uh, in a very short order, that, um, that kind of thinking has been rather washed away by actual people, hasn't it? And the way that people actually behave online. Yeah, it's really interesting that the back and forth is. I think I think the coronavirus thing is really interesting because, you know, you remember shortly before coronavirus, there was a lot of pressure on social media companies around uh, responsibility, particularly around children, the online harms white paper, the idea they would have a duty of mm. care for their users and so on. And there was a lot of bashing of social media companies. And, you know, hold my hand up. I was sort of part of that and, and still am. But then coronavirus comes along and we have loads of WhatsApp groups, local WhatsApp groups being set up to, you know, provide help locally, you know. And I know there's somebody within Facebook HQ who is merrily stowing all this stuff away into a PR bag that they can then open up when the conversation comes back around about responsibility. They can say, well, hey, look, you know, we, we have useful purposes as well. So I think you're right that it's it's not so much waves. It's a sort of constant pendulum effect of back and forth. And in terms of the democracy stuff, you know, you're right. There was there was that thing of the Arab Spring, you know, the Internet has has toppled dictators kind of thing. But then mm. obviously we've also got, you know, Edward Snowden and the corruption around the US 2016, the hacking around the US presidential election in 2016. So it, it, it feels like the pendulum constantly moving. Yeah. Yeah, it does indeed. So I, one of the bits that um, I haven't read all of your book, but I've been dipping in and out, and it's it's good for that, by the way, folks, listeners. Um, the um, bit that sort of leapt out to me a little bit when I was reading the ransomware um, chapter was the fact that uh, these organisations uh, sort of behind the scenes in crim undertaking criminal activities are a bit like that they are just um, sort of darker reflections of... of of our existing way of working out. I noticed that there's things like A-B testing going on. They have specific campaigns. Mm -hmm. I suppose the only difference is they're not quite as targeted. It, it seems a little bit more indiscriminate, but the setup is much the same. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's, yeah, so you, you're right. It, the people who track these things are able to discern different waves of different campaigns. And I, I think I'm right in saying that within the code, they've actually found references to, you know, 
I don't know whether it's as, blat- as specific as this or as blatant as this, but it's things like summer campaign one and summer campaign two. So it's <laughs> yeah. sort of rolling out different, you know, there's the other thing is the affiliate model, the idea that, you know, ransomware works best when it's spread widely. I say works best, works best for the criminals, obviously not for, yes, for society, but um, so, you know, you want to spread it massively wide, but but you need help with that. So this is an affiliate system whereby, you know, I, I will give I will develop the ransomware and give it to loads of people. They then spread it around. And for every infection they get and every ransom they get, I get 20 percent of the take because I developed the ransomware or something mm. like that. Um, so that there are there are sort of business models being evolved around this. And, you know, from the researchers I spoke to, these are professional outfits. You know, they 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 clock on at nine a nine to five day. <clears throat> they develop their ransomware. They're pushing it out. They're looking at their numbers. They're looking at their infection rates. You know, looking at their return. You know, there's a certain amount of business economics around this. I mean, that's not uncommon. I mean, you've got organised crime. You've got money laundering. You have drug dealing. Mm. Other areas of crime have this level of organisation. But there's you know, there's no doubt that that ransomware is has achieved that and recently we've seen the sort of evolution of ransomware combined with data leaking to extort the money from people so you don't just hack somebody with ransomware hit somebody with ransomware you hack some information and you threaten them and say look we've got data from inside your company if you don't pay the ransom we're going to leak this so there's been a little evolution in ransomware I, you know i just i wonder what the next evolution is going to be but it, you're right it is one one long business lines definitely it's fascinating isn't it that people have got that level of commitment to uh to breaking the law and it, it sometimes makes, makes me think that our discussions around ethics for IT professionals um, are a little bit moot while, <laughs> while all that's going on behind the scenes. Um, no, not, at all, not at all, it's still worth having those conversations. Yes, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm being slightly depressing there. <laughs> the, um, another bit that just leapt out to me there, and, and, and this is where our responsibility comes in, isn't it? When um, it was WannaCry, um, hitting the NHS machines. Of course, one of the problems there was that the, a lot of NHS machines hadn't actually been properly patched. And even if they had, it's not always a good idea to turn things on and off regularly in a clinical environment. Um, yes. This, take, take a deep breath while we upgrade your ventilator machine. <laughs> yeah, quite. Yeah. Now, So now we've got some problems there with the way that we are thinking about uh, dealing with cyber attacks from our side of things, haven't we? From from. Mm-hmm from the goodies side of things that say, how can we approach those sorts of issues in a reasonable manner? Yeah, and I think I think WannaCry is a really interesting example of that. I mean, one of the key lessons about that was, was that the NHS, I don't think itself, and people around the NHS just didn't believe it was a target. You know, why mm. would you attack the NHS? I think even hackers, frankly, would have, you know, stayed away from it um, traditionally. Uh, certainly during the, the recent coronavirus pandemic, some cybercrime groups claimed they were they would not attack health services. Um, so, you know, lesson one is, you know, everybody's a target. When you have indiscriminate spreading tools like WannaCry, it can easily impact the NHS, which, you know, one of the world's biggest employers has a lot of machines to, to, to hit. Um, and secondly, you know, the amount of investment that was going into you know, IT security and NHS health trusts. I think one, you know, one source I spoke to said they had a few tens of thousands. I think it was to spend on IT security in a year, and you know, right. it, it it was peanuts, absolute yeah. peanuts. But at the time, you think, well, come on, nobody's going to attack the NHS. So suddenly, all those things start getting revealed. But also, there's a, another lesson there, and you've talked about, you know, the fact that you couldn't upgrade computers. You know, the idea of, of putting out machines and building this increasing reliance on those that equipment to the point where it can't be upgraded or, or indeed replaced. 
you know, I think a lot of, you know, it's worrying how many organizations you look at that are running on these very old legacy systems that are just hoping on a wing and a prayer they won't collapse. You know, I think banking is one of these ones. I mean, from what I've heard of inside banks, some of these, the money manipulation systems, money, tra- you know, money calculation systems and so on inside banks, they run on really old software and really old computers. But but they're, they're processing so many transactions at such speed that you can't switch them off to sort of upgrade them or repair them or replace them because you, 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 mm. you, the whole bank would grind to a halt. So I think there's sort of multiple lessons coming out of that, uh, that WannaCry incident. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating stuff, isn't it? Um, and now I'd, I'd also like to pick up with you something you discussed, uh, mentioned briefly at the a recent BCS webinar that we had about civil liberties. Um, um, and again, for listeners, uh, have a look at BCS's YouTube channel to to listen to that one. Jeff, uh, you were talking about the idea that people should be in control of their own data, that we, we've had these, again, I'm going to use the, the word utopian, utopian visions of, uh, people just controlling all the stuff for themselves, and then just letting whoever they allow to to look at their uh, to look at their information and, and use it with their permission. Of course, those things have not really taken off, have they? How, how do you see that sort of personal control issue? Mm. It, it's it's a really interesting one. Yeah. So so what I talked about was that the number of companies I've seen over the years offering a solution to mm. this problem and saying, look, we will we will. You give us your data and you give us control over where your data is stored online, who uses it. And we'll, you know, some of the models are we'll, we'll reimburse you some money for it and we'll, we'll, we'll actually value it and so on. The problem is I, I have a slight worry with some of those companies that you're sort of out of the frying pan into the fire that, yes, you're not giving your information willy-nilly to every web provider and every website and every marketeer who you come across. But you are giving it to a company who are then going to sort of monetize it on your behalf. Um, so I don't see those massive success among those companies. I do see people trying to rein back on the amount of information they're giving away online. Um, and I think, you know, the rise in sort of privacy centric uh, browsers, things like DuckDuckGo, you know, has been a reflection mm. of that. Um, and there are some companies out there that are pointing, you know, there's a whole spat with Brave and so on, pointing fingers at the traditional industry, data gathering industry. Um, I, I was lucky enough to chair a couple of information commissioners office um, uh, working days on this. So they, they pulled together. It was an amazing couple of events, you know, uh, several events. They pulled together all of the, the publishers. They pulled together the advertisers. They pulled together the ad tech companies, different regulators and so on. And what, what, what I suddenly realized, kind of thought all along, but suddenly realized was the complexity of this. I mean, you're talking about vast swathes of data among different companies then all being aggregated together so company x might be sitting on some data that's not in and of itself particularly sensitive but they Mm. put it together with company y and suddenly company y and company x's data combined together is really sensitive data and sometimes politically or you know gender or sexuality based data suddenly starts to come out of the woodwork Mm. and so it's it's trying to send a sort of barium trace into that system and trace where your data goes, who gets it, how it's combined with other data and how that all comes back to you is something that I've, you know, I've struggled with for, for years and years. So the idea that the sort of general public is going to get their head around this, I, I, I'd, I'd be quite suspicious of. The one moment that really struck out of me was when Twitter went public, when Twitter floated, they had a valuation for the company and somebody took the entire number of tweets that had ever been tweeted and they divided the valuation of the company by the number of tweets mm. and said, OK, this is per tweet, how much each tweet is worth. Okay. And you've got people saying, hey, my Twitter account is worth X. You know, I'm X amount of this IPO. I thought that was an amazing moment because suddenly you had a crystal clear, easy to work out metric to say Twitter's worth X billion. I'm worth 
X thousand of that. Yeah. And I, I thought that's, you know, moments like that are going to be our only chance really to get people to sort of really realize the value of the data. Because all Twitter has is my tweet. It doesn't have anything else of me, no, really. No. And it was, it was a remarkable moment. I haven't really seen the like of it since, but I suspect those moments are going to be the ones that are going to turn the dial. Well, perhaps we should send Jack a bill. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned it, I think it's in the conclusion of your book, about how easy it is to do negative, scary stories, particularly in sort of infosec contexts. So um, how much should we be trying to get the, the sort of more general ideas out to the to the populace, actually? You know, just the general principles mm-hmm. to be careful online. Particularly, I'm thinking social engineering more than more than patching stories, for example. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think, look, the patching stuff is always going to be more towards, you know, people who are rank and file tech security people. They mm. they need to know that stuff. And it's important there is that reporting. And, you know, thank God there is. There are there are journalists sort of exp- and researchers exposing vulnerabilities and journalists reporting them. It's going to struggle to get across to the general public that. And, and for the reason that, you know, they're not necessarily directly affected. And I think that's the thing. It's what the effect of things are. So, I used to, you know, I used to get chats with tech security companies, and and they tell we've discovered this huge new vulnerability, you know, and um, uh, you know, you, you can use it to hack into multiple computers and so on. And I'd sort of say, well, okay, so so who's has this been used? Well, we'd never know. We'd never know. It's so stealthy, we'll never know. So you you don't know if any victims exist? No, no, we don't. Well, do you know who's behind it? No, 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 we don't. We don't. <laughs> and that's the equivalent of somebody in a pub saying to you. There's been a spate of burglaries in this area, massive spate of burglaries, loads and loads of houses been broken into. So you go, oh, wow, you know, w- which houses? Who? I can't tell you. Well, would they know who behind it? No, no, you're never going to catch them. Mm. OK, so what do you do for a living, mate? I, I make burglar alarms. <laughs> you would think to yourself, hang on, how much can I actually trust what this But It was that thing. Yeah. So I think for me, you know, from the very beginning, one thing has been, you know, it's been on my mind is to try and find victims and perpetrators. And I know that's not always easy. I know that's not always going to be possible. But it's really interesting to me over the years I've been working in this. Suddenly, we started to get perpetrators coming out and claiming responsibility. So we got those hacktivist-like types, you know, anonymous mm. and lolsec and stuff. We also got people boasting on the dark web about having done stuff and, and boasting to sort of journalists about having done stuff. And increasingly, victims have come out of the woodwork because sometimes the culprits have, a- have outed the victims or their data's come out. Sometimes the victims, like Talk Talk, have just sort of come clean. So I think in those examples... I know that the companies themselves don't necessarily want that information public. I know that there's risks to kind of bigging up the hackers and giving them too much kudos. But what those stories do do is say to the public, look, these are real victims losing real money. There are real companies affected by this. And here's one of them. And we can name them and show them to you. Hmm. And there are real culprits behind this who are actually on the dark web buying these exploits and hitting companies. Suddenly, the whole thing gets real for people. If you're just saying to people, hey, here's this vulnerability. It relies on CVE, whatever. The public aren't going to get that. They need to know this is actually happening in the real world. Otherwise, you just feel like you sound like you're a crying wolf uh, and your your credibility diminishes the more times you do that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, picking up what you just said there about folks like Anonymous, of course, Anonymous would claim that a lot of things they do actually are for societal benefit. What's your um, take on, on the activism or what it will take for us to perhaps start fighting back a little bit more other than in the normal sort of governmental structure of things mm. yeah it's interesting i mean the the you know to pick up on lolsec i mean i've interviewed a couple of the go- those guys for the book um and they were incredibly frustrated with how bad the company's security was and their their point was the only way to get them to fix it was to um to, to expose it and to, and to exploit it mm. you know 
argue with that logic how you will. I, you know, I'm not entirely convinced. That, I mean, we do have the sort of responsible disclosure things now. There have been instances, though, recently of companies getting asked, you know, giving, giving things under responsible disclosure and still not fixing them and then kicking up a fuss when the, the story goes public. I, you know, I'd like to see companies sort of taking those responsible disclosure things more seriously. We've obviously got the bug bounty stuff, which, again, is really good. Um, but again, there's limits on bug bounties. You know, certain things that hackers do out there in the wild are sort of excluded from bug bounties, which I kind of kind of find weird, slightly weird. Um, you know, if you're a company and you're interested in sort of, you know, people showing how vulnerable you are, mm. then presumably you want to say, well, look, you know, use any means necessary, and if you get in, well, that's that's a result. You know, you, you're entitled to your sort of bug bounty. I don't know. I'm sure there's arguments either way on that. So, um, mm. uh, it's it's interesting. The <sighs> It would be lovely, wouldn't it, to, to, to believe that companies could do all of their own security audits themselves on themselves and come clean and fix everything. Mm. But there's always going to be a market for people who spot the way in and and point that out to embarrass the company because it also does send out a message to other companies. I, I can't see that going away anytime soon, really. I mean, GDPR has got quite a, quite an amount of um, um, requirements to to reveal activity behind the scenes now, hasn't it? Do you think there's a, a start there in a addressing some of that yes gdpr has been really interesting so the there was a sort of initial wave of initial wave of emails of people saying please don't unsubscribe from my mailing list and people <laughs> like me going I, I don't remember subscribing to your mailing list but i am unsubscribing now um so there's that whole wave of how we sort of deal with data um the it i, I sort of i was one of these people sort of before gdpr came in saying look this is going to be a tidal wave that's going to wash over you um unless you take reasonable measures to protect the data if it gets hacked, you are going to have to inform the public and they are eventually going to inform journalists like me. Mm. We have seen some elements of that. So I think one of the first ones under GDPR, I think, was the BA hack was quite early on. There was, there was quite a big fine at that point. Um, and that was a sort of opening salvo of, look, GDPR is here and we are taking it seriously. Mm. Um I I don't know whether we've seen the sort of massive tidal waves that I was predicting, but we have seen companies taking these things a bit more seriously. The other thing we've seen is journalists getting the hang of what GDPR means and hitting companies with quite piquant questions when there's a hack to say, well, hang on, what, what standard of encryption did you use? Because a company might say, well, we encrypted the data, it's fine. Mm. To what standard? And if they say, oh, well, it's you know, such and such, and it's an older standard, then then that's not state of the art. So you're starting to see more difficult questions being asked. Um, of course, the other question is, you know, as we move out of the EU um, or move further away from the EU um, uh, post-Brexit, the extent to which GDPR keeps up with UK data protection legislation, is that watered down in the UK to allow companies a bit more wiggle room? Is it tightened up in the UK to make us a more, you know, robust data protecting country i don't know it's going to be interesting to see whether sort of divergent points happen in that yeah absolutely um one of the other things that i couldn't help smiling at when i was uh, doing a little bit of reading there was when you were talking about the dark uh, net stuff uh, jeff uh, particularly the onion router the history of it being basically in the american um intelligence agencies it reminded me of um the development of lsd which started off, started off being done, didn't it, in, in American universities, and then went out into the wider community and caused all these later problems. And this seems to be an example of the same thing. And now it's become a major problem. So you talk yeah. about that quite a bit. So tell us a little bit about that. 
Well, yeah, so this was this was the U.S. Naval Laboratory, Naval Research Laboratory, the NRL, which is part of the U.S. Navy, isn't necessarily staffed by Navy officers. It's often civilian workers for the Navy who are working there and brilliant, brilliant people, you know, great mathematicians, great cryptographers um, who developed the dark web. Uh, basically, realizing how incredible the Internet was as a communications tool and to get information from one place to another, which is what a lot of spying involves. But then realized, well, the problem is, as the information travels across the Internet, it can be seen, surveilled and tracked by people. So they invented the dark web as a sort of multi-hop encryption technique mm. so that it could move across. Um, what was interesting was that at the very moment they realized that they'd done it, of course, you then realize, well, oh, shit, if, if anybody uses this, it's going to be really obvious that they're using it and that they, they, they've therefore got something to hide. Mm. So their solution was to go... Um, to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which to go back to the beginning of the conversation, the sort of hippie hacker movement, the Electronic Frontier Foundation was of course co-founded by the great, the late great John Perry Barlow, right. lyricist for the Grateful Dead, and one of the very early sort of libertarian utopian forces of you know the, the, of, of the online community. And no doubt the, um, an LSD fan as well, I would imagine. But to go, <laughs> yeah, bearing in mind you can't libel the dead, I'll go. Yes, he was an LSD. Um, <laughs> It seems likely he would have encountered it at some stage, yes, wouldn't it? Um, yes. So he, so they, he set up the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and when the Navy were thinking, right, we've got to share this encryption tool, this privacy tool we've developed, they went to the EFF to, 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 to work with them. So the EFF was sort of part of the joint launch of that dark web technology. But as you point out, you know, this has led now to multiple problems for uh, for the US government and for governments around the world in terms of the dark web drug trade and obviously dark web data trade as well. The, the guy interviewed at the US Navy lab about this was really interesting. He made a really fantastic point, which an interesting point. I don't know the extent to which I agree with it, but he says, you know, when you develop a new technology, it's often the fringes of society and often lawbreakers who are the first to adopt it. Hmm. But these things become mainstream. So it's the fringes who get it first. And then, and he makes the point of, you know, uh, the invention of the car with the automobile where police would turn up to a crime scene and the, the, the criminals had fled in their car. The solution then wasn't to outlaw the car. The solution was to give the police cars as well. So mm. it's an interesting argument. There's, there's different ways of looking at it, but it's, a, it's certainly a fascinating story. And it's, it's the idea that the, you know, the creation of the dark web and Silk Road and all that hasn't been made into a film is, is something that I, I think is a strange, a strangeness in our world. It's a fantastic story. Yeah. Um, that, that is an interesting point, isn't it? It's true to say, I think that, um, Often when new media comes out, it's, it's, it's first colonised often by pornographers, isn't it? So, you know, mm. it's not illegal, but it might be viewed as being an outlier in society, maybe by, by general society. Um, by the same token, when I first read about really resilient IT systems, it seemed to be mostly being done by betting companies because mm. their whole model depended on being, you know, properly done, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. a certain yeah. level of irony there, I think. <clears throat> <laughs> You, you talk about a lot of other, uh, other things in the book, uh, so we just scratched the surface a bit there, haven't we? Um, uh, North Korea, the Panama Papers, very interesting, uh, Stuxnet. Um, uh, what part of the book was, was for you the most, what really engaged you? Know, obviously, you're into this, you've written the book. I'll be honest that the the chapter I really, the chapter I really liked, you're not supposed to have a favourite chapter, I even They're all great, they're all great. It's like, which is your favourite kid? It's like, they're all great. Um... But the one I really did like was the the, the hacking of Bangladesh Bank by okay. Lazarus Group, who are suspected to be part of the North Korean government. I mean, it, it is all, it's almost as though somebody's watched a Hollywood heist movie mm. and looked at it and thought, oh, I wonder how we do that in cyberspace. OK, let's do it. It, it maps out, you know, all the bits, you know, the 
doing the dry run and then assembling the crew and then doing the break-in. Then something goes wrong during the break-in and then they do the getaway and they launder the money. But but it, it spirals out into so many other areas. So there's the, you know, there's a whole North Korea-ology of it and, and the, the North Korean thing is fascinating um there's a great book by the way i'd recommend on north korea called nothing to envy which is a it's 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 about the romantic lives of north koreans okay um which is underselling it somewhat because it's it's a brilliant (laughs) book about north korea it gives you an understanding of north korea that you would not get but it's through it's a beautifully written book um so there's all of that side then there's all the money laundering side you know how you actually take 81 million dollars out of a bank and get it from one place to another and i you know for I'm thinking about maybe writing another book and and the whole money laundering aspect. I just think it's absolutely the number of ways and means of money laundering. Mm. So that chapter, I I really did enjoy writing. It reads like a a Hollywood heist movie. And um, I think I can now say this. You you might have the scoop, the exclusive on this, but it's been commissioned (laughs) as a 10 part BBC podcast series, which we think is going to go out later this year. So there'll be in the book, there's quite a lot of detail, but in the series, there'll be loads more detail. And we're going to go down all those avenues, the North Korean Avenue, the, the money laundering. The different connections it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting uh, podcast that one. Oh, that sounds fascinating so well um as soon as that comes out i'll, t- I'll tell you everybody that you told me first that'd be lovely <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for, Je- for that chat it's very interesting puts me in mind of the series that um um jamie bartlett did recently on the the, the yes. missing crypto queen that, that was a good one as well wasn't it so uh, yep. in the same sort of mold by the sound of it now just one last thing then i noticed in your this really made me smile in your conclusion you almost seem to be saying that email is still the biggest vector of danger for most for most people how often have you been told that and yet it's still the case it's depressing actually writing a book you know so it begins with the love bug virus which was an email spread virus yeah. and it ends with the 2016 us presidential election and, and the aftermath of that which again started yeah started with, with with phishing emails um it is depressing on the other hand it's sort of obvious you know what we've done is we've distributed power through the, through the, you know in the way that the internet and the world of web have succeeded massively in distributing power to people we can all self-publish we can well the vast majority of us in in the world can self-publish vast majority of us have email addresses have instant communication with everybody around the world it is it is a truly remarkable thing and it you know it is to go back to our hippie hacker roots power to the people you know you can't underestimate the extent to which that's happened but obviously as you know to quote spider-man with great power goes great responsibility you know we've also given people access to an inbox and that inbox is connected to their computer, which is connected often to their corporate network. And so in a way, it's just obvious what's, you know, if you've got a, a company where there's like five security people and one CEO, well paid and well protected and knowledgeable, or the hundred employees who might not even have wanted to work for the company in the first place, it it's a sort of obvious tactic. There was some depressing research recently. I don't know whether I trust the numbers, but it was it was some horrific figure of the, the percentage of people who failed to spot a phishing email. And right. It just made my heart sink. Yeah. But there we are. We are where we are, and we have to work with it. Okay. Well, look, Jeff, it's been excellent speaking to you today. Thanks so much for coming on with us. Um, we, we look forward to reading your book. Well, actually, of course, I've had a sneak preview, uh, but I'm sure we'll, we'll hear from others shortly. And um, it, maybe just one last question to you: What would you like to see from organisations like BCS? Well, you know, we're about making IT good for society. Um, we're a membership organisation. Or maybe, what message would you give to the general IT professional? about uh, giving assistance to folks generally. I've got to be careful how I put this, but I think don't overestimate people's knowledge. Um, you know, when when Facebook and Cambridge Analytica came out and all that sort of stuff started to leak out, 
I couldn't quite believe that I was still having to tell people the things that I've been telling them for the five years previously. Yeah. But you do. And again, we've talked about this with email. Yes, you still have to say to people, take care with attachments. You still have to teach people, you know, this is what a phishing email looks like and so on. Uh, you know, you guys, you're so clued up. You're so knowledgeable about this stuff. You're so cutting edge. If you're thinking about the general public, you know, I know it's a cliche, but thinking about your grandma, or your granddad, you know, elderly relative is a good way to start. It's like, OK, that's the level of knowledge you've got to work with. And I know it's sort of a bit depressing. I know it's a bit like, oh, God, are we still having to do that? But, you know, really getting people on their level, coming up with ways that they can sort of understand, um, you know, this is the 80 20 thing, isn't it? You know, 80 percent mm -hmm. of the threats are just basic low level stuff. And yet people still fall for them. So clearly out there in the world, there are still people who are, you know, going to fall for the 80 percent of crap attacks. You meet them on their level because, um, mm. you know, the, the public, the public want to trust tech. They, I, I do think they, you know, they're surrounded by it, um, but they're often bewildered by it. So it's getting to people on their level and kind of thinking, OK, let's just start nice and simple and, and work from there. That would be my advice to you, to, to, to your, to your members. That's lovely. Excellent. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for speaking to us. Um, Thanks for having me. You have been listening to BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT's Gem of All Mechanisms podcast. For much more content, please visit bcs.org or follow us on social media.